Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, it's going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Amen. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, Do have a seat. I feel like there's quite a few faces that we haven't seen here before. Um, It could just be that we're not used to seeing only half your face anymore. But if we haven't met before, my name is Hannah. Uh, I lead the church here with Ed. And you're very, very, very welcome here. We always say, I know that sort of finding a new church, if you're looking for a new church, can be a whole thing. We always say, you are welcome to come and just check us out and see what you think of this thing for as long as you absolutely like to. Um, You're here on your own terms is a phrase that we use quite a lot. Uh, But it's a good week to join us. We're starting a new series today on 1 John. And it falls to me, therefore, to set up a little bit of context behind this book. And I I have to say, I actually really, really like this part of my job. Not not necessarily the standing up here and public speaking part of it. To be really honest, I would really quite happily do it another way. But as long as this is the way that we tend to do services together, culturally and whatever... I'll just have to do it via a microphone. But what I do love to do, um, having spent some time now learning to examine the context of this varied and diverse and often ambiguous book that we call Scripture, and because of how much learning to do that has helped me with all of my what on earth does it say that for questions that I exited my Christian upbringing with. It genuinely brings me life to teach on stuff like this. Before I even begin, I would love to tell you about two books. If you have a troubled past or troubled present with the Bible, I'd love to tell you about two books, both of which have really helped me. They're both sort of entry-level, really easy writing explanations of the context and the genre of this library, actually, that we call the Bible. One is called Inspired by the late, great Rachel Rachel Held Evans. The other is called The Bible Tells Me So by Peter Enns. So I would really recommend just grabbing one of those books um, this week. Start there. But do start, because we're missing quite a lot if we're still mad at this book because of the ways in which we may have been erroneously taught about it. But cometh with me now as we set the scene of the first letter of John. As with all the Bible stuff, none of it is uncontentious. You'll find plenty of people who tell, he'll tell you that John the writer was someone else completely, but I'm just going with the genuinely accepted best case arguments of who he was and when he wrote it. So the year is around 93 to 94 AD. So it's about 60 years since Jesus was around. And by this point, all the other disciples and the vast majority, therefore, of everyone who actually knew Jesus personally are now dead. John, incidentally, is the only uh, one of the apostles to have believed to have lived to an old age. All the rest were martyred. 
And he's been living in Ephesus, in, uh, which is modern-day Turkey, for about 20 years by this point because he had to leave Jerusalem because the Roman army uh, besieged it. And Ephesus is the city where he has lived for most of the rest of his days as a preacher and evangelist. And he is someone who, as a matter of record, many people across Asia Minor came to hear. Um, he was a very good speaker by all accounts. He wrote, we believe, his gospel, as in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's gospel, a few years prior to this. And it differs from the other ones, which you may know. The others are called the synoptic gospels, which is from synopsis. So they're written as to be like straightforward summary gospels. Um, John and these letters had a bit more of a polemical edge. Um, so it is based, the gospel particularly, specifically, is based on what he saw and heard from Jesus' life. But he, um, by his own admission, actually, the end of the gospel, <clears throat> leaves a lot out, specifically focuses on some things, and writes with a particular message. And that's that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, and who he is really matters. The reason he wanted to frame his writing around a specific message like that is that, and this bit is widely agreed upon, the truth of the gospel was being denied by an increasingly influential group of people in the church, probably itinerant preachers, but with a growing number of followers inside the church who were almost certainly Gnostics. Gnosticism from the Greek uh, for knowledge was a philosophical blend of pagan faith and the Abrahamic faith that had two main tenets, and these are important. The first was the dualistic idea that all physical matter is bad and all spiritual matter is good. So everything that is physical from land, sea, air, toenails, peacocks, pickles, everything that is physical is bad and spirit is all that is good. And since matter is evil, God cannot possibly have become man. They did, this group specifically, did believe in Jesus, but they believed he was the physical son of Joseph and Mary, who God, the supreme being, had illuminated with some knowledge and miraculous power. But Jesus was a man. And John was writing a lot of what he wrote to argue, no, no, he was not. The second big idea of the Gnostics was the idea of illumination. Um, it might be quite similar to what we might know about a sort of Buddhist belief that um, the more we can rid ourselves of our physical attachments, the more we can come to divine realization. But significantly, the ridding ourselves is our work to do. And this is another thing that John is very clearly here to say, no, no, it is not. Because these aren't just details to John. These errancies were dividing the church, they were confusing the church, and they were very much convoluting the whole point of the gospel. Which is, to just simplify it for you again, that our ability to have any relationship with God is because of who Jesus was. And then he died and rose again, and because of that, that's how we have relationship with him. And there is nothing we can do to earn it. It is given to us. I think that sometimes we can have, if we ever stop to think about these things, some degree of um, misinformed idealism about some aspects of the early church. I think we sort of think of them as like sharing everything together, being willing to die for it, giving everything up for the poor. 
um, and this sort of wildfire-like contagion with which it spread in the early years. And yet after 60 years, just 60 years, John is writing these letters because the message has already got really, really muddled. And I may well be exposing too much right now as I share with you that um, I sometimes worry that the world today is worse than it ever has been. With all we think we know, with all that it seems we will never, ever, ever agree upon. And I do, I might be exposing a little bit of a dark side, find it weirdly comforting that even 60 years after all the real and powerful and miraculous things that they saw in the life of Jesus, that church communities are fundamentally divided already. To put 60 years in some context, that's uh, six months into JFK's presidency. It's the Bay of Pigs. It's the summer of MLK and the Freedom Riders. And it's Ham the Chimp being the first chimpanzee ever to go to space in the American Space Program. Actually, Ham the Chimp going to space in a rocket doesn't seem that long ago this week, does it? <laughs> that was a joke about Richard Branson and his stupid rocket. <laughs> Which was by no means the worst thing about English men in the news this week, was it? And I actually in this moment resist a massive urge to distance ourselves, having publicly professed a love of English football to you, from a love of English football. Um, not because of the results, it was a beautiful, beautiful match and a well-deserved win, but because of the utterly heartbreaking things that happened. I don't know if you saw it, Bennett, I'm not going to delve into the painful details now. Uh, apart from today, it's really important to acknowledge that white supremacy is alive and well, and we need to keep speaking about this and addressing it. The point is, with Ham the Chimp and Freedom Riders, Freedom Riders rather, in America's South, is to ask you what it is that you think we might think or know about those events if there were no printing press at that time, no photographs, no videos, no journalistic integrity, heck, no journalistic practice. If we were just relying, like these guys were relying 2,000 years ago, on word of mouth, and an education system that only allowed word of mouth of male citizens. How differently might we think about those events if none of those things existed and that's how we got our information? We too might need a letter, a polemical gospel account to clarify things. And that was what First John was written as. A letter to be circulated around the churches who, of course, have no other Bible, no scripture, no canon, no creed, nothing written down apart from these letters, to clarify what needed clarifying. So now we know all that, let's look at chapter one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. You may note... That, that opening sounds very similar to in the beginning was the word language from John's gospel. He's, just, it's, he's making these points very clearly because word of life basically means eternal creator God. And this is uh, John saying, eternal creator God, that's the one who we saw, we touched, we knew him because he was actually here in the real physical word. Verse two, the life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. 
we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. God is light, incidentally, is something worth noting here because it's language that the Gnostics would have used too. Pure, embellished, holy light. But we can only claim fellowship with him because of what Jesus said, is what John is just reiterating. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, like the enlightened Gnostics would have, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. John has what's called an epideictic style. It's rhetorical, oratorical, and it's circular. John is nothing like Paul in this regard. He's not going to give us lists of kind of ethical do's and don'ts and the acceptable teaching that's structured in a flowing argument. John goes round and round and round, making his point over and over again. And the clear and simple message that ends this chapter and flows throughout the book is that we can't pretend we're on the same page with the Gnostics here. Walking in light means recognizing that there is only one way we are purified from unrighteousness, and it is Jesus. So I want to ask you how this lands on you today. If you ask yourself about this famous old man preacher writing this letter to be circulated, that those who believe that they are enlightened by their beliefs and their truths and practices are wrong, that this is the truth, we have the truth. Essentially saying, a right understanding of, of who Jesus is, is the only thing we can inform how we know God. We can, sorry, we can let inform how we know God. The only thing that informs how we live out this together. Expert opinion has it that you will remember only one thing from everything I say today, which is a little motivating fact that I like to mull on as I'm drowning in commentaries week by week. Uh, but please, if you only remember one thing, let it be this. As countercultural, as unpost truth, and downright offensive as this is today, we're 100% with John on this. A right understanding of who Jesus is and what he did is the only thing that we should let inform how we know God and how we live this out together. And let me be really clear, you can come here if you don't agree with me on this. You can come here if you think Jesus was just a wise dude with some awesome things to say about oneness and love. You can come here if you think there were loads of gods and Jesus is just one of them. Heck, you can even come here if you think that Jesus came to change the world via a message of eternal damnation and being pure sexually. If you want, feel free, enjoy that. You can come here and believe whatever you like. But what we will preach and what we will do our damnedest to live by 
and build a culture and community around is that Jesus, Son of God, lived, died, and rose again. And this truth is the only reason that we can have relationship with God today. So so what I do need to do at this point is make it really clear how this is any different to recommending that we all go out there with a megaphone and a tract and stand at the corner of Fountain and L. Ron Hubbard Way and teach them about how there isn't really any lack of paleontological or meteorological evidence for an alien invasion 75 million years ago. You know, compared to a man born in a stable to a virgin accompanied by some criminal sheep herders uh, who heard about it via uh, some angels in the sky and also some Eastern magicians who were there too. Or um, how this is different to taking on our ecclesiastical foes over what they believe about, say, the sanctity of human life or the definition of biblical marriage or what being in a community is really supposed to look like. We don't really like my truth is right and your truth is wrong, do we? And it's not because my truth as a flipping concept is about as logically impossible as two words next to each other can possibly be. History, culture, politics, gender, sex, everything in our worldview tells us that truth has now gone far beyond the relative. Truth is now simply personal. And we get why, don't we? because of everything, because of two millennia of actual wars fought over who disagreed with who about what Jesus said and and what this means. Everything that is still happening today in the name of rightness, in the name of this is who he is and this is who he isn't, the sectarianism, the division, the hypocrisy, and the abuse of power. 2,000 years and counting of missing the point about the truth. It is very, very understandable, isn't it, that we should be so uncomfortable with this? Because what has gone before has made us smart. We know that we need to remain critical thinkers. We have seen what happens when we don't this year alone. Who believes what with regards to the truth of public health messaging? Who believes what with regards to the truth of election results? Who believes what with regards to the truth of climate science? We see people waving flags to their truths and we see the damage that it causes when we don't open our minds to new information. We know, or at least I think we have suspected for a very long time what Canadian research scientists at the University of Waterloo recently proved in a study that they did which is that when we lose the belief that our truth can be challenged by new evidence, we become more and more susceptible to conspiracy theory, paranormal belief, science science denial, and extremism. We know we need to be flexible to having our position questioned. And then I go up, I mean, I go and I stand up and I say something like all this. So let me say some more. When I say that we want this community to be built around the truth of Jesus Christ, who he was, what he did, and what this means for us today, knowing this truth is very, very different to needing to be right about this truth. Because the raging, ridiculous, ludicrous irony to this whole thing 
is that Jesus never needed to be right. He was right. He was God. He was perfect man. He was, we believe, entirely right. But he was never here to prove it. All the way through the Gospels, he passes up the opportunity to prove himself. He was never that kind of triumphal king. He didn't rain down fire from heaven to punish those who didn't believe him. He didn't climb down off the cross and get onto a fiery throne or ride with a band of warrior disciples with a victory charge to to defeat his foes. He said, let the last be first. His followers were the forgotten ones, the weak ones, the unqualified ones. And we, as his followers since then, we're never supposed to lord him as any sort of king or superhero either. He came to change the cosmos. He came to claim victory over death and all instances of human brokenness forever by giving his whole self away. At the extreme end of rightness, do you know what you find? Grace. Grace that never, ever needs to win, that knows where its strength lies, but never, ever needs to prove it. Grace that doesn't need to be right. Nobody wins with rightness. But grace, unchanging love, unrelenting blessing, unending redemption, that leaves the 99 in search of the one, that pays the worker who arrived late the full day's pay. These things change everything. But not because we're right about it. I know that a lot of us here in this community have endured a lot of pain in the last few years about the political and faith positions of family members and loved ones. And I know that this is not a position that many Christians in the public sphere are known to take. But I implore you, bread family, this is the way of Jesus. It knows the truth, but it doesn't need to be right. It doesn't need the little dopamine hit that we get every time we know we're right. My advice, not that you asked, would be take it off social media, get it eye to eye unless we're talking about getting in, some sort of in, in the way of some sort of active abuse, I would just leave people to their beliefs. And I don't mean laugh along out of politeness. It's not about being acceptable or inoffensive. But as Jesus showed us, the extreme end of rightness is grace. The best way, in our experience, to open any, anyone's mind to truth is kindness and acceptance and love. And I say this as someone who deactivated my Facebook account in the middle of last summer after being um, quite mean, as well as devastatingly right to a man in London um, in the comments section who I used to know. I am learning this along with the rest of you. I changed his opinion, I have no doubt, in no way. We're all still learning, aren't we? That we're called to a life that moves beyond all desire to be right, beyond all otherness and domination, because that is what Jesus did.
um, a, a mum friend at my kids' school who I met, this is pre-pandemic, um, so almost a couple of years ago now, um, didn't, what, didn't grow up with the Christian face and wanted to come and check bread out when she found out what we did and came for a few weeks and um, didn't stay. And her verdict was uh, she really liked the music, she really liked the acceptance, she th really liked being among so many hip people, so just so you know, it doesn't go unnoticed, guys. Um, but what she didn't like was that we uh, seemed to believe it all a little bit too much. I suspect we've been called worse things. But if you follow the logic of this whole thing right back to the starting point, there is absolutely no point in us doing any of this stuff if it didn't really happen. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. All of it is futile, said Paul. I mean, sure, we could keep some nice traditions going for the kids, couldn't we? Uh, we could definitely stop each other from being lonely in this very lonely city. We could absolutely serve the poor, and that's really important. And that's, you know, there is, there is some point. So maybe, maybe there's not no point. But if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, there's no point in praying ever. There's no point in worshipping ever. There is no point in any of this stuff that we have faith for. But if it did happen, if it did, if Jesus really was the Son of God, if he really did live, live a perfect life, and if he really did die and rise again and restore us to a right relationship with himself, isn't that something we do want to grab hold of and run with? I have spoken to a number of people in this community and outside of it too who are going through the hardest times of their lives right now, even potentially outside of the worst bit of the pandemic, are going through some really tough stuff. Health issues, mental health issues, relationship breakdown, real career and calling pain. And these pains so often bring us to our knees before God and force us to examine what our faith in his goodness is really based on. I have actually come to realize that far from these moments being ungodly, that they're actually some of the most holy times we can endure. Just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood in anguish over his questions about what was before him. I've been thinking quite a lot about what I wonder might be one of the most holy prayers in the whole of the Gospels by the desperate father of a possessed boy in Mark 9 before Jesus set his child free. He says to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. If your faith in who Jesus is and what he has done and what this means for you today is low, can I suggest you just start there? If the band wants to come up and um, get ready to sing another song, we're going to sing in a sec. But just start there as we sing, as you leave here, as you go on throughout your week. I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. 
And then I just wanted to remind us of one final thing from verse 9 before we sing. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's very simple. It's the heart of the gospel. And it isn't just about specific wrongdoing. It's about every instance of um, what we need and how we lack. Tell him about it. Tell him about what you need today. Tell him about what you're scared of. Tell him. Because he is faithful and he wants to purify you from it. It's only this. It's only receiving this that enables us to love, to show grace and mercy to others. If I was talking about perhaps being kind and gracious to people who you'd find it really difficult to can I suggest you just need to receive more of it? So let's stand now and sing and receive from him. What we often say, if the guys want to start, is um, if you want to stand and open your hands like this just before we start. It's a sign, it's not magic, but we just say it's a sign of being open. Invite him, because the spirit is here and he's always at work. But he responds to our openness and he responds to our invitation. If it is a lack of belief that you need his help with, tell him. If it's his goodness that you need to receive more of, tell him. If you want to know that you are forgiven, ask him to show you. Come Holy Spirit.